0: So if you'll join me in prayer as we get started. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege to stand here to proclaim the good news that is Jesus. To share with my brothers and sisters and the joy that you've given us in that. And I pray, God, that as I try to speak, you'll take the words, make them make sense, put them in the right order, Drop off the things that don't matter, Lord. Father, may your spirit just speak to us this morning as we look at your word. we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was a fairly typical Saturday at the Nicholas house. Some of the boys were off on a play date with friends. And uh, Rachel and I had spent most of the day kind of working around the house, getting way too little done probably for the amount of work that we'd put in. And somehow or another managed to realize that the day had escaped us. And um, we had plans to go to dinner with uh, with the boys and their play, play dates. And uh, I looked up and I had about 15 minutes to, to get ready and, and get everybody there. The problem was I had an errand that I had to run uh, before we could do that. And uh, so, you know, as things would normally be, um, Noah was not really sure uh, if he wanted to go to dinner with a bunch of kids. And um, Ellie Kate had not had a nap and was pretty whiny. And uh, of course, Caleb wasn't ready to go when I needed to go. And so the plan that I enacted was to run out, run the errand, stop back by the house and pick up Caleb on our way to dinner. And when I got there, Noah had changed his mind. He'd gotten Ellie Kate shoes on and they were all ready to jump in the car and we all headed off to dinner. Had a great meal, some greasy pizza down the street with some friends and uh, we were just kind of sitting there having some conversation. The kids had gone off to the back and were having a time playing in the arcade when suddenly uh, a loud noise erupted from the back and it was loud, loud enough to get everybody's attention in the whole room. So Rachel gets up to investigate, and about that time, the boys come running up, and they've somehow managed to get together enough money to win at the call machine and get the um, plush toy, a, a Marshall fire dog that they pulled out. And I think there might have been a fight ensuing over who was really going to get it um, from that. But as Rachel was back there checking on everybody, um, my phone rang. And it was a friend of mine that lives down the street. Um, he, he was calling. He's also a fireman, and he called to say that he had heard a call that there was a fire on our street and wanted to know if I knew where it was. I explained that we were at dinner with friends, and I really didn't know what was going on. And I asked him, I said, do you know what address they called that fire into? And he said, 2408. Uh, and I said, Mikey, that's, that's my address. I said, are you messing with me? He said no and about the time that my stomach was leaping inside of me i looked up to see rachel walking towards me pale-faced on the phone as she had received a call from her co-worker who also lived down the street who had called to check on us because they heard the sirens and wanted to make sure everything was okay down our way and she said she didn't know what was going on and so he walked down there as she was walking towards me to see our house uh, engulfed in flames. There's a lot of thoughts and feelings that go with that. But, and over the course of the next couple of hours, uh, we stood there on the street and watched as we lost pretty much everything to fire, smoke, or water damage. And yet somehow, as the night unwound, I found myself At the end, standing there surrounded by my brothers and sisters in Christ, people that love me and love Jesus. And in that moment, there was praying and laughing and smiling and hugging and just an overwhelming sense of peace and thankfulness thankfulness that God had saved us, that the kids weren't there, that it wasn't any worse than it was, that there were people around us. I had no idea what God was doing, but I felt at least a little bit of hope. How is that possible? That in the midst of chaos and grief and fear and sadness, Somewhere there's joy to be found. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you'll stand with me as we read from God's Word, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. So take that in for just a minute. Let the words of Paul in this introduction to a letter that we're going to spend the next few months going over, let those words just sink in taste it for a minute. I think it's probably a weird flavor for most of us. It's this gushing, mushy kind of letter that expresses so much love, talks about a man's joy very personally, how he's been forever changed, and this is just the introduction. In this short little section, it's bursting with overwhelming emotion. So we're going to break down, break that down and explore more of the elements of it this morning. But all to that end, I hope that we walk away experiencing what Paul was experiencing when he re- writes things like this. I thank my God in remembrance of you, or I pray with joy because of our partnership, or It is right that I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you and I pray for you. What seems almost too mushy for us to take in in our modern culture seems even more unlikely when you realize that Paul was in this inconceivable type of situation that he's riding from jail where he's been for almost five years. I find it hard to believe that if I was in jail for the next five years that I'm going to spend uh, much time contemplating. Maybe, hopefully, I'm wrong now that I have Christ. But in, in the words of, of my normal life, it's hard to imagine sitting there writing about love and joy, especially in such cheesy terms, overwhelming terms, that it seems like it words that could have bled from the pen of the hallmark script writer. But yet we see Paul's circumstances barely mentioned in this introduction. He doesn't make a big deal about his imprisonment or how hungry he might be or how tired he might be. But yet there's an overwhelming feeling that exudes from this letter and it's joy. So why is this so hard for us? Because I'm guessing that if we polled this room today, there's probably several of us that could come up with some recent experiences of joy. There's also probably some that are sitting here this morning that would say, well, it's been a long time. I'm in a pretty dark hole. And there's probably also those of us that really would struggle to say well what the difference between happiness and joy might be. And if that's so, the answer is kind of hard to equate with words. Uh, When I looked it up in the dictionary, it says that joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. I didn't really like this definition primarily because it makes joy sound like it's just a matter of degrees. Happy versus very happy. But I'm inclined, based on Paul's words, to believe that there's a little more of a relational component to joy that we sometimes miss. So if we go back to verses 3 through 5, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you. All making my prayer with joy. Why did he have joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel. And just hold that in your memory bank there. From the first day until now. He was making prayer with joy. Why? Because of their partnership. Because they've been working together. They have a relationship. One way that I kind of thought while I was trying to, to figure out how to explain this was to, to say, if my granny made me some biscuits, that would make me very happy. But if I got to go to her house and make them with her and sit down and eat them, that would bring me joy, right? If my mom sent me a pair of new shoes because she knows I'm in need, that those shoes would make me happy. But the fact that I know that my mom's thinking of me and she knows my needs and she cares, that would bring me joy. Now, before we get too far off of any theological deep end, that I may not be prepared to talk about. Let me just acknowledge, joy comes from God, right? So, we'll get to that part in a minute. We're gonna flesh that part out a little bit more as we go along, So we talk about just how to do that, how that joy comes from God but I wanna stick with this idea of relationship for just another minute, okay? Almost all of the biblical uses that you see of the word joy describe these joyful celebrations that somehow invoke God or his church, his people, including marriages and childbirth and things like that. And they all seem to be based around these covenantal relationships. These are the deepest and most meaningful relationships, the ones that aren't meant to be broken. And they are often about a covenant with God and with people, not just a covenant between two people. And so I want to just kind of set that there as we move towards this idea of thinking about joy coming from God. So we see uses in Scripture when God has brought victory to his people, when they're celebrating victory from war, when he's promising his people things, uh, when they were praying for God to intervene and, and specifically to give them joy, they were asking from God. We see it when we talk about the bridegroom coming and when angels appear and when heaven is foretold. And so according to the concordance, there was 165 times that the word joy appears. I didn't have time to research every one of them, but I did go through at least about 40 or so. And in every one of them, God was invoked. And so what's happening here? Paul here is celebrating and calling us to uh, happiness, so we might say, that goes beyond our circumstances. He goes beyond what we might be feeling. Here he is in prison, and we're going to see later in, in, in some of the subsequent chapters that you know, the church at Philippi had sent people to, to help him, to take care of him, to give him money, Epaphroditus had come and brought him supplies, all of these sorts of things. And those things, I'm sure, made him happy. But we see Paul writing here with an affection that goes far beyond that, and a relationship that's rooted much deeper than just some courier who's... Uh, making a delivery, or even a friend bringing a meal. He calls it the affection of Christ. And if we're not careful, those words can almost go in one ear and out the other. I know they, they honestly almost did for me as I was trying to write this out. But I think it's actually the key point that the affection of Christ is the key. If we're not paying attention, we won't see that Paul's affections were stirred by Christ. And think about who who he is and what that means and see that Christ, he's the Christ that gave up heaven. He's the Christ that washed feet. He's the Christ that forgave sins. That sat with those that betrayed him. That Christ to give second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances this is the affection that is unmatched undeserved and it's almost indescribable and this is what Paul is saying is that like, it goes so much deeper than you can even understand so why does this matter to us If you searched our headlines in the media today, I think you would find a world that's divided. I doubt that's one thing we could probably all agree on in this room, that the world is crazily divided. Flat versus round earthers, real or fake moon landings, black versus white, male versus female, Republican versus Democrat, to vaccinate or not, homeschool versus public school, Methodist versus Catholic, Baptist versus Baptist these days. (laughs) the rich versus the poor. Honestly, the list just keeps going and going, right? Like, you can just keep going on because pretty much everything that people have an opinion on or a thought about, they've taken to fighting for, or there's no room for differing opinions and certainly no room for compromise. And people are selfish. They've developed their own truths. And as a result... People are looking everywhere for something that will bring them joy, and they can't find it. While I was trolling the web this week, I came across an unknown to me, internet megachurch pastor. You know, the kind that always has a great illustration and a really catchy way of compelling story to make it go. So I'm going to steal it without all of his vibrato. But he showed a picture that he took out of a car window through the front windshield of his car. It's just a picture of a car across the street in front of a building. It was nothing special. But it was framed in this picture by the air freshener that's hanging from his rearview mirror. Now, his was a really cool air freshener. Just so you can get a picture, he probably wasn't from around here. I've never seen one like that. So just think like green Christmas trees hanging from your rearview mirror. It's about the same size. He said, Look at this air. My air freshener is bigger than that car. Now, we all know that can't be true because the air freshener is inside of his car. But he said, it's a matter of perspective. We're closer to the air freshener than we are to the car. So it seems bigger. And then his mic drop line was that if your problem seems bigger than your God, then you're probably closer to your problem than you are to God. And I think our tendency a lot of times is to be closer to our problems than we are to our God. And part of what Paul wants us to see this morning is that though our life may be full of issues and storms and difficulties and things that distract us, we're so easily focused on our little bubble, our need, our hope, our desires, that we miss what God is doing. But if we can keep close to God, our perspective, and therefore our actions will be changed. So, there's a phrase that I skimmed past a minute ago that I told you to keep in your memory bank when we are back at verse five. I think it helps to bring it all together as we think about this, and that's what we're gonna come back to, so keep tracking with me here, okay? Because despite, Whether you're in this room today as a guy who thinks that mushy hallmark emotions are for the birds, or whether you're a woman that's put up a thousand walls because of her past hurts, the reality is that we all want what Paul is describing. We all want this joy. We may be terrified of what that would mean for our lives. But we are created in God's image to live in relationship and to love. And So what do we do? That's usually the next question, right? If we've got a problem. What do we do about it? And the temptation, I think, in a passage like this is to take it and, and say, what has what Paul laid out here? Where are some key words that I can pull out and just take those home? So let's do that real fast. See where it leads us. He starts by saying grace and peace to you. Now, he's offering it. So I would say he must have it if he can offer it to others, which means I need to have it too. And so let's just get some of it, right? The best way they say to get grace is to show grace. So we'll try that. We'll try to show grace to those around us. And peace. Oh, peace, that that comes with quietness and solitude so i'm pretty sure if i can kick together 10 minutes a day or so to meditate that'll give me peace and so what else he says he's making his prayer with joy so joy how how do i get joy without invoking on the study we might be tempted to say you know it's just a matter of keeping a positive attitude Trying to keep in mind how I should feel even if I don't. Well, check that box too. I can do that. So what's next? He's praying for something in the future. So I guess that would mean that he has to have hope that's going to come true. No problem. Sunday school answer, right? Jesus equals hope. If you got Jesus, you got hope. We'll invoke the name of Jesus. We're doing good so far. Checklist is looking easy. righteousness. That's the last one, right? I got it says I got to live pure and blameless. How in the world am I supposed to live pure and blameless? The reality for most of us is all of us. It's already too late for that. Our temptation is to make a to-do list only to find out that not only is it hard to do, but it's downright impossible. When the person that you showed grace to at work stabs you in the back so that they can get a promotion. Or when your 10 minutes of quiet time every day gets railroaded by your loud kids. Or your joy is killed by your overcrowded schedule that leaves no time for reflection. And that future that you had hoped for, well, nothing's panned out yet. And your hope is fading. And then you get to that last one, that righteousness one. I mean, I probably said three cuss words yesterday. I was a smart aleck to the clerk at the hotel last week. And I scream at my kids when I shouldn't. And I don't love my wife the way I should. And did a double take when some girl ran past me on the greenway. And I have road rage. And... And, and, and there is nothing righteous in me. So now what? Almost in direct response to that frame of thought, Paul starts this letter by pointing us back to the thing that really matters. He starts out with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And he sends grace and peace to them from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is where we go back to that little skip phrase. Paul had joy of their partnership. But there's a qualifier in that. And it's in the gospel. It's the relationship that matters most. The shared relationship with Jesus. It's probably worth noting here, if I shouldn't have done it before, that in this context, particularly in context of their partnership. Paul is a church planner. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, they recount the beginning of the church in Europe. And Paul was there. He first revealed the gospel in in Philippi. And Lydia overheard it and responded. And Paul spent almost five years with these guys growing the church there, teaching them to be disciples, living with them, loving them. Now, at this point, he's been in jail almost that same amount of time in Rome because the bureaucracy and the political mess of his Roman citizenry is part of what kept him there so long. But that time in jail really should have given Paul a lot of time to think about what he would want to say and how he would want to say it. Because in this context, he's a spiritual father writing to his favorite son. He writes what could be his final words to them. Depending on the outcome of his trial, he may have nothing else to say to these people. But the thing that he starts with and continues with is pointing back to their shared relationship in Christ. This is key, because he's not laying out a checklist like the one that I sarcastically laid out a minute ago. Nor is he leaving you with some kind of puzzle to figure out, but he's pointing us to experience things. This is not a command to be joyful to earn Christ, but instead it's a promise that in Christ, you will experience joy, no matter the circumstance. Now, even here, I feel like we have to be careful to avoid distraction from the devil that might say, oh, well, this is about Jesus, and he's not here with us anymore, but like his people are, and the church, and that's, that's good. And, and don't hear me say that the church is bad, okay? Because it's not what I'm saying. If anything, I would say in this passage, we could have approached it from a whole different point of view that would say the church is a primary key to joy in the gospel. But I think that we also have a tendency sometimes to get into a place like this and find distraction where we enjoy being with each other so much and having fellowship with one another and serving one another that we can forget about Jesus. We can spend so much of our time getting together with each other that we quit spending time with God. And that that just misses the point. The prize of our relationship, of the people in this room, the thing that makes me be able to stand here before you all from all of your different backgrounds and all of our different levels of relationship and all of those things is the fact that we're united in Christ together. And so the prize of our relationship with with God through Jesus is that we have Jesus. It's just we also have fruits like unity, peace, joy, hope, and righteousness. So we don't want to get so caught up in pursuing those things with one another that we miss Jesus. Now, Bonhoeffer kind of reinforced what I think Paul was saying here when he said, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it is a brief, single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. So if all of this is true, what do we need to know? It seems like Paul's laid out this way. This is kind of the the summary. So if you don't get anything else from any of my train wreck thoughts today, you can just take this one sentence. The love of Christ creates unity in Christ, which gives us hope from Christ for the glory of Christ. Let me say it again. The love of Christ creates unity in Christ, which gives us hope from Christ For the glory of Christ. Now, I've lived this out firsthand. I've been a part of this church for almost seven years. And at this church, our shared love of Christ has uniquely bonded us together. And it, it really has created a unity that no matter what words I stand up here and say, if you're not a part of it, you can't really understand it. If you've never experienced it, it's hard to understand that God could bring all of these people from all of their backgrounds together. And a few weeks ago, as I stood at Valentiff's wedding, as the old guy, as an elder in this church, watching many of your faces smile and laugh and talk, and many of your bodies dance and jump, I experienced a joy that did not come from the pleasure of my dancing. It did not come from the fact that I have video of Rusty acting like a child. It didn't come from eating wedding cake, because even though it was really good, it was also good for you. It was really good, by the way. But it came from being there with you guys. From having a hope that all of the work and all of the time and all of the shared experiences and all of the relationships and all of the choices that could bring that many people together in one place, in one banner, was not just because they loved Val and Tiff, But it was because they had a shared hope and a shared love for Jesus that made relationships that were deep enough for someone to give up their Thursday afternoons, leave work, travel miles, go to places at three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon to love and celebrate. It gave me peace about our future. And it made me thankful for the moment And it helped me to show grace to those that were not singing loud enough when they sang, you never even called me by your name. And I have a pure and righteous love for you all. And when I left, I was overcome by that. Not by the tiredness, not by how good El Primo was, but I was overcome by how much I love you guys. When I talked to Rusty and Tim about that afterwards, there was overwhelming unity that says, Your elders love you all. We yearn for you. We want to be with you. We love you. Our hearts are stirred to serve you, and we want you to experience the overwhelming love of the Father and we wanted to bring Him glory. In the seven years, we have literally gone from a handful of ragtag believers meeting in a living room on 15th Street in little old Cleveland, Tennessee, just because we loved the Lord and were loved by the Lord. And we had the audacity to hope that by mixing things up with different discipleship environments and deliberate gospel messaging, that we could bring glory to Jesus somehow. And now here we are, seven years later, in this room, with these people. We're supporting missionaries. We're training church planters. We have missional communities reaching out into the city. We're helping to equip students to take the story of Jesus with them wherever they go. That is joy. So did we answer the question of the difference between happiness and joy? I don't think so. But the biggest difference between happiness and joy is that joy is a gift, a fruit of the Spirit at work within you, a gift of love from your Father, whom you have at times despised, who in response to that called on his beloved son Jesus to go and take your place of shame, to bear your burden of guilt and to pay the price of death all so that your broken relationship with the God of the universe may be restored and that you might retake your seat at your father's table and enjoy all of the father's blessings for eternity. That sounds like joy. To many in our world, that may sound like more hogwash than a Hallmark movie. But to those of us who share in Jesus, it gives us something that can't be described with words. Can only be experienced. So when the world is falling apart and you find yourself standing in the street staring down great loss or at the side of a friend who is making a covenant before God, you can experience joy. If your life is without joy today, you may need to adjust your perspective. You may need to spend more time with the Father. You may need to get farther from your problems and closer to God. But you may also need to ask, do I know Jesus? Do I love him? And is he the Lord of my life? Am I submissive to his call? Or have I put up walls to the truth and settled for less? So church, I beg you, not to miss this today. Rejoice with us. Find joy in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the hope that he gives us. We thank you, God, for joy. His life would be boring without it. Help us to find you in as many places as we're willing to look. Help us to love well. Help us to submit to the authority of Christ in our lives. Help us to bring glory to your name around the world. And your kingdom come here in this place and beyond. We ask it in Jesus' name.